Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 21 is where we'll be this morning. Now, before I start, I want us to think about uh, for just a moment of what it would be like to live in the times of the Old Testament. And what I mean by that, I'm not saying the primitive nature of it where we don't have the things that we love like Netflix and Walking Dead and March Madness and the things that we don't think we can live without today or even smartphones or technology or cars or planes or running water or electricity. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm really saying is what would it be like to live in the Old Testament in terms of how we would worship the Lord? What would it look like if you were to worship the Lord in the Old Testament? Well, a couple of things there. First of all, you'd have to assume that you were an Israelite to worship the Lord in the Old Testament. If you weren't an Israelite in the Old Testament times, you'd have another set of problems, mainly God. That was your biggest problem was God because he was not for those who were not Israelites, all right? But if you were an Israelite, if you were a believer as an Israelite, here's the things that you would have to do to worship God in the times of the Old Testament. You would have to obey laws that you could not obey. And I know when we think about the law in the Old Testament, we think about the Ten Commandments. And by the way, the Ten Commandments are just a summation of the whole law itself, which the whole law itself was 600 plus laws that you would have to know and you would have to obey perfectly. And guess what? You couldn't do it. So when you inevitably failed and you inevitably disobeyed one of the laws, you would have to do something about your sin. So what would you do about your sin? Well, you would have to go through the sacrificial system whereby you would meet with your family and go to the tabernacle. And at the tabernacle, which was basically a tent in the middle of Israel, you would have to go with your family and you had to bring a sacrifice to the Lord. Your best animal, not your wounded animal, your best animal that you would sacrifice to the Lord. And that animal's blood would be shed for the forgiveness of your sins and the sins of your family. And as you would go to the tabernacle, there would be a priest there who was only who was allowed to communicate with God, but would only walk into the presence of God behind a veil in the temple once a year for the forgiveness of your sin. And the priest would then act as a mediator between you and God. And that is how you dealt with God in the Old Testament. That's the rigorous works-based process that one Israelite would have to do to deal with God under the Old Testament, or we would call the Old Covenant. So my question is, why don't we do that today? Like, why didn't any of you come in here with a sheep around your neck, ready to give a sacrifice to the Lord? Why didn't we see a, a bronze altar in the parking lot where we would cut up our offerings and burn them before we came in? Because Peter would freak out, obviously. That's one reason. But why am I not acting as a priest this morning? Why am I not the mediator between you and God? Why is there not a veil behind me where we could pass by, me only pass by every year? Why is that? Well, something changed. When did it change and how did it change? Well, obviously, hopefully, you know how it changed. How it changed was because Jesus Christ came into the world perfect and sinless, born of a virgin, 
and he died as a sacrificial atonement for your sin. He was the perfect offering for God. So there is no need for us to bring our sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the great high priest who sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. And he is the one mediator between God and man. So there is no need of human priests to go before us and God. We have Christ. So Christ is the reason why, but the question is, is when did it all change? When did we stop worshiping in this way? Here is the quick answer to that question. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is a story of Pentecost. And Pentecost is when everything changed. And so my goal this morning is to uh, for us to leave here knowing what it's like to live in light of Pentecost. And so let me just give you sort of a, a brief summary of what Pentecost is. Chris did an excellent job talking about the first portion of Acts, Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 when the actual event of Pentecost happened, but I want us to, to feel what Pentecost would have been like. Imagine if you were a believer, you and 120 believers of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, you are there and you get these marching orders from Jesus that you are going to take the gospel to the world. And that's your responsibility. And you're going to do that once the Holy Spirit falls upon you. And so at the same time, you're waiting. When is the Holy Spirit going to fall? And then we're told, according to Acts chapter 2, that many people were traveling to Jerusalem. It says many devout men and women. And it says, the text says, from every nation are coming into Jerusalem for this feast of the harvest. Which for an Israelite, this was like a spiritual feast where they would come together sort of like Mardi Gras today. Mardi Gras today would have been, it, it did have spiritual significance in the past, but now what you see, it's the complete opposite of that, right? And that's exactly how an Israelite would have seen the Feast of the Harvest. They would have gone in, they would have thought, this is, they, they would have thought at one point, this is a spiritual feast, but now they're just doing it because that's what they do every year. Like St. Patrick's Day, that's what we do every year. We don't really know what it means, who knows? Something about the Irish, that's it. And that's how they would have gone. So they would have come in, the Feast of the Harvest, little did they know what's about to happen. Because what happened next was astounding. You have 120 people who follow Jesus, and then all of a sudden, tongues of fire come down from heaven, and now they all speak in tongues. What is tongues? Well, I think what's very obvious here in Acts 20, I'm sorry, Acts 2, what's very obvious in Acts 2 is that it was a real language. All right, it's not gibberish. It's not some mumbo-jumbo stuff that we just roll off our tongue and then that's a spiritual note. That shows up later in Scripture. We can talk about that. It's complete. But right here in the text, I think it's very clear that this is a real language. In fact, if you just look at verses 6 through 8, 
This is in Acts chapter 2. It says, At this sound, the multitude, they came together. They, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. That's how you know it's his own language because the text says own language. Verse 7, they were amazed and astonished. How are these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? I think it's very clear. All language means in the Greek, all language. So they were speaking in their own language, so it, which means literally, and, and this, is, this is the astounding thing about it. So I want you to remember, these are 120 normal, everyday, simple, blue-collar people. And they're speaking a foreign language for the first time in their lives perfectly. Which is like, Ben Tugwell's not bilingual. I can barely speak one language fluently. But we're like, okay, the spirit follows me, and all of a sudden I'm speaking Spanish, and like real Spanish, not the southern twang thing that I try to do when I order Mexican food. Not carnitas. I'm not ordering carnitas. I'm saying it the right way, which I'm not even going to attempt to do right now. And that is what it would mean if I were to speak in tongues. I would be able to speak a real language. And so the purpose of it is this, that all of these people are coming together to hear the gospel in their own language so that then what Jesus said that would take place would take place. That every tribe, tongue, and nation would be reached for the gospel. And here's what's funny about this that all the people who saw it, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews who saw it, they were bewildered. The passage says they were amazed and they were perplexed. And the text says in Acts 2 that they actually thought that they were drunk. There's no way these people can talk this way. They've got to be drunk. They've got to be drunk. But what Peter is going to do next is Peter is going to deal with this issue. And in the way that he deals with their skepticism is really his response is going to give us the big picture of why we're here this morning and why we worship the way that we do. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. This is what Peter says to the crowd. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. By the way, Peter's the guy who 50 days before denied Jesus three, day, three times. Remember that? Now he's speaking boldly in front of the crowd of people. Why is that? Well, the Holy Spirit fell upon him. That's what gave him that boldness. This is what he says. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. And so he's saying, it's early. By the way, it's not 3 a.m. That's not the third hour of the day according to a Jewish calendar. It would have been somewhere between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. when this would have taken place. He's like, dude, it's, it's, 8, it's 8.30. No one's drinking right now. I mean, here's what happened. So he begins to tell why they are speaking in tongues. And what he does in this, as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit, Peter gives the very first Christian sermon. And what I love about it is, it's one of the most powerful sermons in Scripture next to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
Look in verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So Peter goes back to the Old Testament, and this is what he says. This is what Joel says. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and my female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, these are really strange words for the very first Christian sermon. You've got vapor and fire and blood moons and men and women and old men dreaming about stuff. And it's like, what is he talking about? Well, in order to understand this is we have to understand Joel. Now, because what he does is he quotes a direct quote, and I'm not even going to show it to you because it's literally a direct quote from Joel 2, 28 through 32. He quotes it exactly the way it's written in Joel 2, 28 through 32. But I do want us to understand, for for you to understand Peter, I want you to understand what Joel is about. Because the book of Joel is really about God's judgment on the the nation of Judah, the tribe of Judah Judah and the nation of Israel. He is judging them because um, Joel is, is a prophet who's telling them to repent from all of their pagan worship. And so what he does in Joel chapter 1, the very first part of Joel chapter 1, he tells the, the people of Judah, hey, if you don't change, I'm going to send a bunch of locusts to eat you up. And that is what God does. And you want to say, okay, why locusts? Why is he going to send a bunch of locusts? Listen, God is God, and if he wants to send you a bunch of anything to destroy you, he will. If God wants the world to look like cloudy with a chance of meatballs and kill us with giant spaghetti and hamburgers, he will. That's And here he just chose locusts. And you might say, well, locusts, that just doesn't seem that bad. You can just, you know, you can just put some, you know, some sort of insect repellent out and that's not a big deal. But uh, a couple of years ago, this really hit home with me. Uh, Jess and I, we have, we don't have cable, so we have Netflix, which means you're stuck with really weird shows to watch. And so we started watching the show called, it was an Animal Planet show called Infestation. Anybody, anybody see Infestation? Okay, one of us. There's one person as weird as me. That's good. Two of us. Good. I see that hand, brother. Amen. Um, and so Infestation is a show about how these people have either rats or snakes or different types of bugs infest their houses. And they can do nothing about it. There's one couple, they bought this house, and apparently the house was built on top of these snake nests that were underneath it, and they can do nothing about it. So they had snakes climbing on their walls. They have snakes in their bedroom, and, and they, they snakes in their water. Like, they had, like, a stench to their water. Their showers were stinky, like snake stuff in the shower. And and then they later on, like, I, I mean, this one... Um, family, they lived out in a farm in Australia, and they had an infestation of mice, 
And it was so bad that I'm not, this is creepy. Like, go look it up. Infestation of Animal Planet Mice. Google it. Um, guy walks out of his house in the middle of the night, and he shines a flashlight. And all you see is little bitty eyes, and you don't even see the ground. That's all that it is. And it's eaten up all his crops. It's all up in his house. It had nice trap. It didn't matter because he was infested. Now, that was scary to me knowing that the animals are, or the insects are not there intentionally trying to kill you. But imagine the world infested with locusts whose intent is to destroy you. There is nothing that you can do about it. You sleep at night. They lift, they lift you up off your bed. I mean, like, that's what is happening. And that's what he's saying to the people of Judah. If you don't repent... If you don't change, I'm going to rain down upon the nation of Judah locusts. And so then, Joel 1, he then continues to talk about what it would look like if you were to repent. And I'll read Joel 1, 13 through 15. I want you to notice some of the language that we see here because it's going to be similar to the language that Peter uses in the sermon in Acts. Joel 1, 13, he says, Put on a sackcloth and lament, old priests, well, old ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. So he's saying, you better call an assembly. And all of you better call on the name of the Lord. And this is what he says. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord. This is a very important phrase. The day of the Lord is near. As a, a destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So what does Joel do? He's saying the day of the Lord is the day where locusts are going to come and they are going to feast on your flesh and destroy you as a nation unless you repent. And he refers to the day when locusts would come as the day of the Lord. And so then what he does, Joel 1 and Joel 2 are all about what happens between. He calls them the last days. These are the last days that you have to change and to turn and to repent. That's what he's saying. And so that's, that's what Joel is setting up here. And, that, and so it's strange then that Peter would bring this in to the very first Christian sermon ever preached to the church. This is the sermon text that he uses. Hey, guys, remember that time where God threw a bunch of bugs at us and ate us? That was awesome. That's his first sermon. And it's odd because what is he talking about? Well, in, under, in order to understand what Joel is talking about is we have to understand something I'm going to refer to as progressive revelation. And this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us over time. Because an Israelite would have understood Joel 2 as that's when we get eaten by bugs. That's it. And the last day is when the last day is when we get eaten by bugs and we need to do something about it before and those are the, the last days. And so why is Peter bringing this up? Here's why. And this is odd, because I'm preaching a sermon about a sermon about a prophecy. 
Okay? But here's what he's doing. He's saying that story that applied to Joel is really about us. Now, for Israel, it meant something that was more temporary, but for us, it means something that is eternal. And so what Peter is saying is this. Pentecost happened, and this is God beginning to warn us that Christ is coming again. And so what Pentecost is, according to Peter, Pentecost is the beginning of the last days until Jesus Christ returns. It's the age that we live in called the age of the church. And it's important that you know, this is why you let the New Testament interpret the Old Testament because you would not have seen that otherwise. And so here's the thing. We, you and I, According to Peter, we live in the last days. This is the age of the church, and Pentecost was the beginning, and the end of the age of the church is when Jesus Christ comes again to take his bride, his people, those that he has paid, uh, that he has died for on the cross. And so Peter is saying this to the crowd. This is why we spoke in tongues. This is why you're seeing the miraculous happen around us where all these men and women prophesy. All of these young men will have, give, uh, have visions and all these old men will have dreams. The young male servant and the young female servant will prophesy. He's saying that is because we are in the last days. That's what's going to happen. And so what Peter does is he explains what's going to happen in the time of Acts all the way up to now and all the way up to the very last days. And so six uh, verses 19 through 20, for instance, 19 through 20, when we see um, fire and vapor and blood moons and all those things, he's talking about the few days, the few days that happen before Jesus returns. We don't know how literal that is. Here's the thing I would say about that. It shows up in Revelation later. We'll wait and see, all right? That's what we're going to do. We'll just wait and see because I don't know. Um, But verses 17 through 18, we can see some things. There are some things that we're going to see that happen in the book of Acts and some things that still happen today. So I want to explain those things. So first of all, according to verses 17 through 18, he says, sons and daughters... Male and female servants, it says they will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Old men will have dreams. And so we see this happen, first off, in the book of Acts. We see in Acts 21, you see Philip the evangelist. He has four daughters, and his four unmarried daughters, they prophesy. And they tell of who God is. And then we even see later in Acts 10, or earlier in Acts 10, Peter, he gets a vision from God that he would take the gospel to the Gentiles. And you see later on in Acts 16, the Apostle Paul, he gets a dream to go to Macedonia and take the gospel to the Macedonians. And then you even see later, even outside of Acts, you see later um, John, the Apostle. He's called John the Revelator by some that God reveals to him what's going to happen before, before the last days come, before the day of the Lord comes, the very, the very end. 
in, in 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. That's why he writes 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, to warn people in the last days. Then in Revelation, he tells us what's going to happen at the very end when Christ comes and takes his bride. And Revelation sort of his way of giving us a, a comic book. This is what it's going to look like. Of course, we don't know exactly how that's going to end up, but we'll just wait and see, right? And so here, he's saying all these things happen. So, so my question is, then if we look at that, then what now? What does this mean now? Well, obviously, now, we have the full revelation of God's word. You're not going to have new prophets come and say, this is what God said, and this is what God's going to do. If you, if you find that person that's saying, here's a new revelation about how God's going to come back and how Jesus is going to run, they're wrong. We have all the, the revelation that we need right here in Scripture because the canon of Scripture is closed. And so Jesus is saying that, what do we, what, then what do we do with the sons and daughters and male and female servants and young men who see visions and old men who see dreams? What do we do with that? Now, here's what I would say, because I believe that's true. I would say that that means we are now, because we have the full revelation of God in Scripture, that we will be enlightened by God's Word. And I've seen that true in my own life. I've shared my testimony up here before, and uh, if you've heard it before, you know that I've shared that it wasn't until, I think, fifth grade that I couldn't read. Like, you, my dad's here, you can ask it. Like, it was painful to get me to read. And so, when I became a believer, I became a believer at 11 years old. I wanted to read the Bible. And so I used my dad's old King James Bible. And somehow I could read the old English out of all things. Ben can read. That's a miracle. How did that happen? God's, Peter said it would happen. Peter said young men would have visions. Old men would have dreams. We will understand and we will be enlightened by what God says. Anytime you meet a new believer, it's, I've seen some of the most skeptical, analytical, critical people become believers who would want all the information of every single step and thing that they believed in, whether politically or practically. But when it comes to the Bible, they're like, yeah, I don't really understand how... Um, Jonah could be in a well or a big fish for three days and still live. It doesn't make practical sense or even like biological sense. I believe it though. I don't understand how God can be in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and I can't explain it. I believe it though. I don't understand how Adam and Eve were the first people, and you know, and, and you just it goes on and on. And, and God before that, what happened? I don't know, but I believe it. I believe it, and, and it goes on and on and on. How did God speak through a donkey? It's odd to me. How is it that Samson could kill a bunch of Philistines with a jawbone? I don't, I don't understand it. Does it make practical sense to me? I believe it. Why do we believe it? Because Peter says that you will. Because we live in the last days. 
That's why you believe it. And so you and I, we're going to be able to open the word. At the point we become believers, we'll believe it. We might struggle with certain texts. We might say, well, that passage is difficult. I don't know if I fully understand it. We might work through it. I can't believe that God would do that or be that way. But man, over time, he's going to win. And you're going to believe it. I mean, even, even over time, even as a, 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 if you're a believer and you've been a believer for a long time, you've already seen this in your life. You go, I've read that passage 25 times and it finally made sense to me. Why do you say that? It's because that's when the Lord allowed you to believe it. That's when the Lord gave you the vision to see his word. Why? It's because we live in the last days. We live in the age of the church. We live in a time that God said this would happen. But what about prophecy? What do we do with that? Because the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets in the New Testament even, delivered a message from God because God had not yet fully revealed himself because the New Testament was being written as the New Testament was happening. So how do people hear from God? Well, they needed prophets to say, this is what God says. This is what prophet, this is what God is going to do. But now he said all of it, it's there in scripture. Then what do we do with prophecy? Well, here's the thing. Right now, I'm standing before you this morning and I'm opening the word, I'm explaining it. What I am doing is I'm giving a prophetic word from God because I'm proclaiming what God has already said and what God is already doing. But I'm not giving you some new revelation. I'm just telling you what God's word says. Every time you go out and share the gospel, you are giving prophecy. You are sharing what Jesus did on the cross. And what you then see is people respond to it. Why? Because it's the word of God that you are proclaiming to other people. And so what happens in the last days is that fools like me and fools like you, we are enlightened to understand God's word. And it doesn't make sense that we would believe it, but we do. Paul says it's the foolishness of the cross that offends a lost and dying world. We believe in this foolish message and we live our lives according to it. And we get to go out and prophesy and share the good news of God. I believe that there's a, a gift of prophecy where some are better at sharing the word of God than others, but we all have this ability to go out and proclaim the word of God. And he says it's young men, young women, young servants, female and male, which is, means everybody is going to have an ability because of the Spirit being poured out on us to go and share this incredible message. And that's why the gospel is not exclusive. Paul says it this way in Galatians 3, verse 27 through 28. He says, For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In other words, there is no elitist system. God saves whoever he wants, and God uses whoever he wants for his kingdom. And guess what? This is the greatest miracle of all. And this is the pattern that we see in the last days. God fills us who believe 
with his Holy Spirit, and he enlightens us to understand his word, to obey and live for our king. And then because we are filled with the spirit, we are enabled and we are gifted to share the gospel. And I see a lot of people, and this is why this is so important. I see a lot of people who say, man, I want things like the way it happened in Pentecost to happen today. Like I want our church to look like Pentecost, right? And I like say, you want to see signs and wonders and all these things. I say, praise God for that heart. To want to see God do the miraculous things. But here's the point of Peter's message. Peter's message is saying, it's not about signs and wonders and living in Pentecost. Rather, it's about living in light of Pentecost. What does that mean? What does it mean to live in light of Pentecost? Peter tells us, verse 21. And it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it means to live in light of Pentecost. And Israel would have under, an Israelite would have understood this as, you'll be saved from locusts. You'll be saved from an infestation of bugs, which was temporary. That was a temporary deliverance. And what Peter is saying is that we're not saved from a temporary deliverance. We're saved and we're given eternal life. And that's what he gives us. And that's the greatest miracle of all is that we are given eternal life. So we don't live in Pentecost. We live in light of Pentecost, where God pours out a spirit on anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And this is the greatest miracle of all. And Jesus, he would do miracles all the time to the gospels and people would marvel. And I love what Jesus says in John 14, verse 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. What's Jesus saying? What's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying, you and I are going to see the greater works, greater than what Jesus did himself on the earth, because we get to experience the miracle of salvation. Which is what? What are the greater works? Here's the greater works. Peter says it. Sons and daughters would prophesy. Young men would see visions. Old men would dream dreams. Male and female servants would prophesy. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so this morning, we're here because of the greater works done in the name of the Lord. No longer do we live in the last days where we had to go through a sacrificial system to worship God. No longer do we have to obey, try to obey laws that we cannot obey. We get the privilege now of living in the last days where God pours out his spirit on us and we can see a miracle happen every single day. What is that? It's when God takes a person was born in their sin, an enemy with God, an enemy against God, 
who is, according to Ephesians, dead in their sins. But because of the grace of God, the sacrificial son, sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, they are made alive to the gospel. And so the wonderful miracle that we get to be a part of is we get to see the miracle of death from death to life. John 5, verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says this, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's the greatest miracle of all. And so this morning, my question is this. Do you live in light of Pentecost? Do you realize this morning that you will prophesy in the last days, these days that we live in, and you will tell others that the day of the Lord is coming, that Christ will soon return? Do you realize that? And if you do, you'll share the gospel. You will share the gospel. And guess what? People will get saved. And guess what? The more and more I share the gospel, the more and more I see people get saved. I found that very interesting. And you can't mess it up. He's saying you cannot mess it up. It's going to happen. And I've told you this a bunch of times. And this is why I can go in a coffee shop and I can get in front of somebody. I can preach and share the gospel. And it could be like eloquent and sound really good and very pastoral, and like, oh man, I'm, I'm so glad. I look at them, and they don't respond, and the next time I meet with somebody else completely different, I totally butcher the gospel message. It doesn't sound right. The only thing I get right is what Jesus did on the cross, and I look at them like, there's no way they want to respond to it, and then they do. Does it make any sense? Why do they do that? Peter said they would do that in the last days. The gospel will be proclaimed because of the work of the Spirit in my life, and work the spirit in your lives as believers, and the work of the spirit of those that he is drawing to himself, and their eyes would be open to the gospel. And that's the miracle. So look, it's we've already won. I mean, we're winning. Okay, we're gonna win. Share the gospel. People will get saved. Not every single person you share the gospel will get saved, but if you share the gospel a lot, a lot of people will get saved. That's what he's saying. Share the gospel. We get to live in the last days. What a privilege. What a wonderful thing that we have before us. Second thing is this. You are a living miracle, and you get to see miracles happen all around you. What a privilege that we get to live in the last days. We get to worship the Lord, and we get to wait for him to return to take his bride with us. And he does not come to judge those who believe. He comes to save those who believe. And so this morning, my question is, do you believe? Do you believe in the gospel? Have you repented of your sins? Have you called upon the name of the Lord? My hope is that you will. My hope is that you have. And if you have, you are a living miracle. And now God has called you to go out and spread the gospel, and to prophesy and to tell other people about Jesus, and watch the Lord save those that he calls upon that they call upon him to be saved. So this morning, may we be a church who live in light of Pentecost.
God help us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for all that you've done in the lives of your people. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts this morning. Help us to see the beauty that we have in Christ and the gospel. And Lord, I just pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people who live in light of Pentecost. Help those, Lord, who are not believers, Lord, that they would become believers. Lord, help those who are believers, Lord, would see that they are a living miracle and that you owe us nothing because you've given us everything in Christ. And so, Lord, because of that, you've told us that we will share the gospel and people will get saved. Doesn't mean everybody that we'll share the gospel with, but we'll see miracles happen all around us. We see people move from death to life. And that's because of your finished work. And so we don't boast in ourselves this morning. We boast only in you. Help us to be a church who lives in light of Pentecost. In Jesus' good name, amen.